Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Tom, good morning. I believe you enjoyed the match on Saturday. I have to say I did. Right? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I was also a little disappointed. I felt we should have put more points on the board. Right. And I think that by the end of this yeah. championship, uh, uh, points difference may be significant. So, yes, yes. But anyway, it was wonderful. Yeah, it was pretty it really much champagne was, uh, rugby. Yeah, champagne. And Ireland, I thought, played so well. You know, it wasn't quite a walkover. It was just that they played so well because they... Yes, they did. Yeah, knew, yeah. Uh, yeah. And luck, happily, no injuries as well. Yeah, that's very true. That's very noticeable, actually. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Well, Tom, that was a great kind of start to the weekend. I enjoyed my weekend as a result, I must say. Maybe buoyed by the victory. I kept smiling to myself. Yeah, indeed. But here yeah. we are now, back to ourselves. So, Tom, what have you got for us this week? Well, this in the month of February, 100 years ago, Ungartha Shiakana were formed. Oh, uh, yes. yes. So I thought, well, why not Definitely. celebrate in some way? Yes. Uh, after the truce, the RIC handed over uh, <clears throat> their various barracks around the country to the Free State authorities. And... Uh, Unfortunately, excuse me, the first group of Gardaí to arrive in Galway, they actually came by train. Uh, <laughs> but the day before or the night before the Eglinton Street headquarters, their big barracks there had been destroyed in an arson attack right. on the 2nd of July in 1922. And so a frantic search began really for uh, the 23 Gardaí and eventually they managed to find accommodation in the county club. Right. Uh, yeah. They stayed there for almost a year. The, work, <laughs> the work members actually, didn't like that, I'd say, Tom. No. Well, yeah, probably not. <laughs> it must have been fun in the bar, all right. I bet, I bet. Yeah. Uh, the Eglinton Street barracks had been gutted internally, really, but work began almost immediately on repairing it. So... It was about 10 months later when a sergeant daily and 10 guards left the county club <laughs> and they moved into the wing, the part of the barracks that was now at least habitable. Uh, and uh, a, a lot of things were happening with the Gardaí at the time. Uh, they were expected to take over a building in Dominic Street very shortly and civic stations were opening in various parts of the county as well. The county was divided into seven districts for police purposes. And uh, in, in 1924, it had uh, roughly 300 personnel in the county between Gardaí and superintendents, etc. Now, 10 years before, the RIC had almost three times that number. Uh, but I suppose if we're talking about an organization that had literally just been set up, 
that was kind of um, yes. to be expected, really. Uh, and and they were growing very quickly. So by 1926, there were 63 Garda stations throughout the county. And they were already, uh, according to reports, beginning to build up splendid traditions, exemplifying the true position of the law, cool and calm judgment and action. So the the red brick building that was Eglinton Street, that formidable building. Yes, it, I remember it. Yeah. No, indeed. Yeah. It, it yeah. had a dormitory space on the top floor for 16 single guards. Mm-hmm. Every young single guard that came to Galway for about 50 years was expected to live in there in this <laughs> dormitory situation. Yeah. And of course, this meant that they were on call almost not, not all the time, but in the event of any kind of an emergency during the night, you can be sure they were called up almost yes. immediately. They had uh, a big dining room as well and a day room. <coughs> uh, but, you know, uh, it, it was pretty primitive, really. Uh, most of the, the, the police duties in the early days they were either on foot or uh, on bicycles. Uh, now, they eventually got squad cars, but even as late as 1959, the Chamber of Commerce were asking that they, uh, their squad cars would be supplied with radio call systems. In other words, a communication system where those in the car, the squad car, could communicate with the station. It seems like a million years ago now, you know, but anyway, (laughs) uh, a big recruitment drive got underway in uh, the 19 early in 1960, in fact. And uh, one local newspaper wondered, where are the strapping young fellas we saw in uniform in the past? (laughs) There was a time when first class recruit meant six feet. Tall. <laughs> Cars now appearing on the street are like mere boys compared oh, to the okay. material we're used to. They are small, tidy, and dapper. And <laughs> one of the old brigade turns out with one yeah. of the new brigade, it looks like a father taking out a promising son who will one day grow up. No, no. That was pretty damning. Uh, yeah. And I don't know what that newspaper would think of no. the guy today. Yeah. Anyway, in the, the, the early days, and that's what I'm talking about, the early days of the okay. Gardaí. Okay. You know, yeah. there weren't that much policing duties, really. They were quiet. They were fairly mundane things. Yes. Uh, you know, there were occasional pressure points, like, for example, when John F. Kennedy arrived or when uh, Reagan, Ronald Reagan, yeah. or, or indeed uh, when... Or during Paul, race week. During race week, you'd see a lot of new guards in town. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. There was always an increase. You're exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there were, with the advent of the troubles in the north, of course, uh, there were significant changes as well in terms of bank robberies and uh, altercations. <clears throat> there was, a, in, in probably the first one was 1972, a postal worker was very badly damaged, injured in uh, uh a raid. And then, of course, in 1974, there was the awful uh, death of Jerome O'Connor, the murder of Jerome yes, O'Connor, yes. really, outside Allied Irish Bank. Yes. Uh, uh, but there was a big success as well. Um, 
when the there were two Englishmen once who had been, well, <clears throat> they hadn't caught them, but they were alleged to have raped and killed two young women. Yes, I remember. Uh, Shaw and Evans were their names. <clears throat> and uh, two eagle-eyed uh, guard, the, anyway, spotted them in near the barn of wood and picked them up and they were arrested and convicted. Uh, and tried uh, uh, the murder for the murders. Yes. So yes, there were always successes, and, and they, generally the Gardaí have always kept things under control. Really, yes. Uh, now it's also fair to say, of course, that this force today it's unrecognizable to what it was back in those days. I mean, there have been so many changes since the first of all, the guards moved out in 1986. It was. Uh, they moved out of Eglinton Street into a new complex on Mill Street. Uh, but the growing population of the city meant that Mill Street quickly became too small. And so now there's a major U headquarters out on the Renmore Road. Yes. And when you think of it, things like computerization and technological advances, all kinds of communications uh, mean that the force has evolved into what I would say is a very highly sophisticated organization today, yes. really. Yes. Uh, so I have a couple of photographs this Excellent. week. Yes, yes. One is of, uh, it's interesting, actually, it's of a guard uh, on patrol in Air Square with his bicycle. Now, it may look very old-fashioned, but if you think of it, uh, community guardee today, patrol on bicycles. They get around estates, urban yes. estates, you know, on bicycles. But somehow this photograph looks very old. And then the other photograph is of a Sergeant O'Malley and a Garda Mellet. They are pulling out the door on Eglinton Street following the very last patrol there right. at 10 o'clock on January 26th, 1986. Oh, boy. So that's my lot for yes. this week. And, and were they glad to get rid of Eglinton Street? It was a terrible... Oh, yeah. Oh, I, afraid. It, it, it yeah. went into disrepair, and it wasn't fair to have guards there. You know, some of them are still sleeping there, indeed. It exactly. wasn't fair no. right up to the time that they closed the door. So no. that development in Mill Street was a long time coming. And indeed, the Salt Hill Barracks as well, has got yeah. a lot of sophisticated equipment. Yes, yeah. I, I, I think... Eglinton you... Street, sorry, it was yes. very crowded as well, Ronnie. I'd say you know, so. I mean, yeah. they, they were literally working shoulder to shoulder. Yeah, the rooms really. were small. There were small rooms. It was a yeah. real Victorian That's... building. And yeah, exactly. Place, in fact, that it was there for so long, occupied yeah. by the guards. Um, yes, there are a lot of cameras around town. Policing has definitely changed, as you say, Tom. I'm glad to say they're still on the bicycles. I, I see a guard I know to see on a bicycle on occasions. But... Yeah. Um, Yes, a lot of cameras around town. That must be extremely helpful. We're, we're a, you know, an interesting city. Oh, the, sorry, the other, of course, advance is yeah. that today we have female policemen. Now, they used yeah. to call them Bangardi, but mm. I think that term is not, not allowed. acceptable. No. Yeah. Not allowed. Uh, yeah. 
Yes. And uh, I think it's probably a more efficient force for the fact that there are females in the guards. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I was just going to say that we're an interesting mix in a city because we have a huge youth population um, between the universities and the GMITs and the various second, uh, third level colleges. We have a large and, you know, extremely well-behaved young people, it must be said. Not that I'd expect them to misbehave, but, you know, for the huge numbers that are there and uh, how very welcome they are to the commerce of the town, but for the huge well numbers that are there, they are extremely well-behaved. And uh, it's always a pleasure to see them in September, October, coming back into the streets of Galway because yeah, they sit out in the cold, out of the restaurants, and they have their coffee and chat and talk. Yeah. And it's always really heartening to see that re renewal of life again. I just like it very much. Yes. Tom, that, that's great. The guards have a great tradition, you know, of your often get a family that you know have a tradition of, of being in the in the force um, yeah. i think the guards are highly respected uh, in, in oh yes ireland yeah. yeah you know as i said they took over in very difficult times the times of the civil war they were unarmed they're still unarmed um and they really are i think you know much appreciated by the community i'm certain of that oh, absolutely yeah okay Tom, that's excellent. Uh, that really is excellent. That's your second week on the guards. Well, I'm doing something totally, totally, totally different now. <laughs> but I couldn't resist it because last weekend I was looking through my, my, my library and I came across um, an interesting publication by uh, the British House of Parliament. And it had to do with the outbreak of smallpox in Athenry in the early spring of 1875. Now, it's interesting that a lot of things can be said about the British. You, you mentioned the huge numbers of the RIC as opposed to the Guardi. We were very well, we were over-policed actually, the British uh, were, were running this country. We were over-policed and, you know, the amount of guard, our army barracks around, I mean, we're very heavily guarded, which really was unnecessary, but obviously felt it was. Uh, uh, you know, one thing about the British um, civil service was they're very good at keeping records. And uh, yes. it must be great for people doing research because, uh, you know, meticulous records were kept, and I presume yeah. they're still available. This was a meticulous record kept and published by the House of Parliament um, about this outbreak of smallpox in Athenry in 1875, and a massive epidemic, not, not, not enormous, not a pandemic. Smallpox was being eradicated at that time, believe it or not. Uh, inoculation against smallpox was compulsory and it was being taken up by various people and of course there were objections to it as well particularly in the UK but I'll come to that but I'll just tell the story roughly Tom that in March 1875 a medical officer of the Athenry Dispensary District a Dr Leonard now this is a man I have high regard for and high respect for and I hope he's uh, brilliance and as a doctor and as a caring human being will come through in the weeks ahead. But anyway, he wrote an urgent letter to the local government board in Dublin, regretting to report a very bad case of smallpox. Now, he was the medical officer in the Athenry dispensary. 
Um, he, he briefly described how the smallpox was discovered. He talked about a William Burke, 22 years of age, took ill the previous Saturday, February the 17th. He was employed as a baker's assistant to a Mr. Patrick Cochran in Toome, where he was resident. The local doctor, Dr. Turner, visited him and ordered him immediately to hospital and that his bed and blankets should be destroyed. However, young William, remember, he was only 22, he asked to go home to his family in Tai Quinn. So Mr. Cochran, his employer, assisted him to the railway station where the poor man walked with great difficulty and he was left seated in the carriage while Cochrane returned to the office to purchase a ticket. Then, fearing the attention or detention by the constabulary, Cochrane left Burke seated in the carriage and returned home to his bakery business. Dr. Leonard hoped in the letter that the poor sufferer would recover, for he suffered dreadful gastric, gastric irritation on the way from Toome. However, on arriving at Athenry, Burke, with assistance, made his way to a friend, a publican named Nolan, who lent him a coat, since returned, it's noted, and sent, setting him on his way in Whelan's car to Tyquin, which was about six miles distant. Now, Dr. Brodie of the local government inspector became immediately involved. He updates his board in a letter saying that he called to check on young Burke, Sad to say that he found he had died. Burke's father, who insisted on carrying his son to his grave, has since contacted the disease. The priest who attended Burke, a Reverend Walsh, a curate, also contacted the disease. And he lies ill in Keenan's Hotel in Athenry. This uh, um, is commented on as been a very busy hotel, especially with commercial travellers. So the danger of propagation is, is obvious. Now, some action was immediately required, Tom. The hotel was to be closed until it was thoroughly disinfected. If the proprietor and the comment is made about him, he's a wealthy man who appears to ignore the law against the spread of infections, and that if he continues not to cooperate, the constabulary will have to be informed. Now, local proceedings have already begun against poor Mr. Cochran, who carried William Burke uh, to the train instead of sending him to hospital. Yeah. And uh, when he was told specifically that uh, he was to be conveyed immediately to hospital, but um, Cochran sort of, you know, was sorry for the young man and brought him to the train and sent him on his way, of course, spreading the disease mightily. So the question of popular a hospitalization is raised following another case of the disease, this time a 12 years old boy who had actually been vaccinated Tom. He lived with his father and mother, a niece and five other children at Newcastle, about three miles from Athenry. Dr. Leonard feared at the removal of the boy to the Loch Ray Workhouse Hospital, a distance of 12 to 14 miles, would be attended with serious danger. Now, the serious danger, as I, I hope to uh, enlarge upon in the, in the weeks to come, not only from the spreading of the disease, but from the fear and reaction of the people. And it's recommended that a special dedicated outhouse or a, a isolated hospital away from the community would be the preferred solution. And the urgency to find a suitable premises would occupy the medical authorities for some weeks. Understandably, 
once word spread that there was smallpox in the community, people began to become uneasy. And, uh, you know, they were understandably nervous. And transporting patients across the county might be problematic. In the meantime, it was decided to leave the boy with his family. Now, poor Father Walsh, the curate, died from the disease and was buried the same day. Mr. Kinneen, the proprietor of the hotel, became seriously alarmed. And he promises to have the bed, bedding, and every article of furniture in the room burnt, the paper removed from the wall, and the wall thoroughly limewashed. Now, it's just interesting that compulsory vaccination of children against smallpox was introduced to Ireland in 1863. Now, this is information I gleaned, Tom, because I became caught up in this subject. Of course you did. And, you know, because we're just going through another epidemic ourselves, I'm yeah. looking for various parallels. But anyway, introduction of that was introduced in 1863. Within a decade or so, the instance of smallpox was very much reduced, but it sometimes reappeared out of the blue in places like Athenry, causing widespread concern. Of all the infectious diseases, Tom, smallpox was the most feared. Yeah. Parents dreaded the alarming signs of fever, vomiting, a severe skin rash, leading to 80% of deaths in children. Survivors risked being left blind with facial scarring, but luckily, to have survived and to be still alive. But it was not unusual, Tom, to see adults with pitted faces, you know, and which yeah, was yeah. the sign of the child, childhood infection. Now, the Galway Vindicator, uh, in a leading article about this time, reckoned that this outbreak of smallpox was imported into the county Galway by vagrants. Now, we're always keen to, to blame the yeah. poor old foreigner, the people yeah. who come among us there, that cause, they brought it into us. And uh, the Galway Vindicator says it first appeared in Dunmore and then in Chum, where there were many fatal cases. Quote from the newspaper article, the disease was reportedly br brought into Chum and Athenry by a baker named Walsh. Well, we know his name was actually Burke, who came home on March the 1st with smallpox and died a few days later. Within a few weeks, the article says, it was widespread throughout the town and neighbourhood despite a vaccination campaign. By May, there were over 100 deaths. That's true. The town was right. isolated and Dr. Leonard converted part of his house to a hospital, this wonderful doctor, with additional sheds in the back to accommodate patients in his own house. Now, wow. the paper praises Mrs. Burton Purse of my ode, who opened a fund for the relief of the town, but other landlords, it noted, were not as helpful. Anyway, it's likely that in Dublin at the time, smallpox was ever present, at least with the effects of mass mass vaccination did reduce its virulence, smallpox was still there in various, uh, you know, spots and places. But the chairman of the Tube Board of Guardians, so he wasn't a blow-in, he wasn't a vagrant, Robert Bodkin, returned from Dublin where he had spent a week, he was unwell, leaving the city, and he now resides at home, attacked by smallpox. A distressing letter from Dr. Leonard, who was called to visit a Catherine Cannon, who resides in a lodging house kept by her aunt in Athenry, part of which is a bakery. Eight other people share the same dwelling. The letter wrote, the poor afflicted creature, 
who has scarcely sufficient covering, has no mother. Her father was never a help to her and not able. And even if he was willing, he was useless and didn't attend to her once. She is suffering from smallpox and piteously asks me to have her removed to hospital. She is entirely destitute. Dr. Leonard complains to the local government board that when he sent an order to the hospital attached to the Lockray workhouse for the immediate removal of Catherine, he was refused. Instead, the relieving officer, Tom Lally, called to the doctor's house and without consulting the guardians in Lockray, he refused to move the patient and he gave two shillings for her father as a relief to the poor girl. Dr. Leonard demanded to know if he was being disbarred from discharging his duty to the suffering poor. And he quotes, I must respectfully ask the board if the Union Hospital is open to smallpox patients, and if such, to form the relieving officer of his duty to accept those that I recommend. Hmm. And I'm going to leave it there, Tom, because this is what happens. The fear that grips the people, it actually leads to a riot. And, you know, the hospitals refusing to accept, you know, smallpox patients because they're afraid it'll spread as indeed it would to the other patients in the hospital. So anyway, look. uh, look, A terrifying story, really. It it, gets... It, it really does. But of course, the, the, you see, the early methods of smallpox vaccination was crude, to say the least, because infectious material, uh, sometimes scabs or pus, was taken from another infected person, sometimes actually from a corpse of someone who died. And that material was scratched onto the skin of the recipient who hopefully developed a less severe infection from which he or she would recover and develop immunity. Now, I was looking up a Dr. Kieran Wallace from Trinity College, and he says that method of inoculation was as risky as it sounded. <laughs> and he goes, I know. He goes on to talk about Edward Janners, that brilliant pathologist and scientist in Britain, in as early as 1798, that inoculation with the much milder cowpox produced a similar resistance to smallpox, and that was the real breakthrough. Jenner's method became widespread and was first introduced to Ireland in 1800. By 1863, I'm quoting, his vaccination method was deemed so successful that it was made compulsory for all infants in Britain and Ireland. You could be fined if your child was not vaccinated. And this, of course, in England, because they're they're full of themselves and uh, they they believe in freedom and freedom of choice. And there was great opposition to it in England. And there was a huge anti-vax movement, as there is indeed today. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I know it's gas. There are these parallels which are interesting. But in Britain only, Ireland did not object to its compulsory nature. They accepted it as a godsend. But I got a lovely quotation, and I will stop talking now, from George Bernard Shaw, who sent a letter of support to the League, the Anti-Vax League in 1911, to their conference, describing the distribution of dirty and dangerous calf lymph to children was nothing short of attempted murder. (laughs) Good man. Good man. He always 
we'll come up with the quote. But anyway, Tom, I'm going to continue the story next week. We'll see the parallels. Well, I look forward to that. Dreadful disease. Okay, Tom. Listen, right. I, o- I always enjoy talking. You stimulate me to get things done. And um, uh, I don't know. My reading has expanded as a result. Okay, yeah. Tom. We leave All it right, at that. Right. Until next care. week. And don't get that smallpox. Bye. Bye. <laughs>